Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. First off, I have to apologize for missing the last few weeks as I was bedridden fighting COVID. Speaking of COVID, have you ever wondered why some people say that COVID is nothing but a little cold and they call it silly names like the Kung Flu? And then there are others who swear that it's the worst disease they've ever had. And of course, we know people who are dying from it. How is it possible for the same disease to be both? Or some people get the vaccine and they say it's no big deal and experience no side effects. Others get the vaccine and they die from it. Again, how can these both be from the same vaccine? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today when we talk about how COVID kills. Since I've been sick, I haven't put my notes together quite as tightly as I usually do, so I hope you'll forgive me if I if I wander or ad-lib just a little bit on this one, but I think we'll be okay. Um, I definitely want to talk about uh, how COVID kills, but before we get to that, um, I actually want to set a little bit of a foundation by talking about some, some important stuff that, that sets the groundwork for this, and then I'm going to talk to you about something I discovered right before I got sick, and then I'm going to tell you about my experience with being sick, and I think you're going to learn something very important today. So let's start off with the fact that right at the beginning of this, we were told that this was a novel coronavirus. And I remember the first time I heard that, I remember telling my wife, um, I hope it's not that bad because it's not a matter of if we get it, but it's a matter of when we get it. And the funny thing about that is that the CDC had basically that same statement on their website for a long time. And then took it off and went the opposite direction with it. So you can tell there's an agenda because originally they were telling the truth and then they started telling the exact opposite. And, and yet we all know if it's truly novel, then that means that nobody has immunity, so everybody's going to get it. Now here's the funny thing about that. I went back and, um, and this all started before I got sick because I was looking through the patent records. If you have not listened to David Martin, I highly suggest you look up David Martin. Now, I don't use Google. I use DuckDuckGo. But if I put in David Martin into DuckDuckGo um, and look for his videos, which a lot of them are on Rumble, I can find his videos. He does an excellent... He is the um, CEO of a company that's the world's number one dealer in non-tangible assets, which basically means they deal a lot with patents. Um, because of that, their company has access to the patent record in a way that most people cannot get access. And so he went back and looked at all these patents. And so he walks you through, I think it takes about an hour, and he walks you through step-by-step step everything that's revealed in the patent record. I'm not going to do that today. I Instead, I recommend you listen to David Martin and let him do it. He does an excellent job, much better than I could probably do anyway. Uh, but I just want to hit some of the highlights as they are relevant to what we're going to talk about a little bit later. The first one being the fact that, like I said, this is supposed to be a novel coronavirus. The fact is, nothing about it is novel. Um, according to David Martin, the patent on the SARS-CoV-2 virus was first acquired in 2003. Um, the way the story goes, Fauci applied for the patent. He was denied, and he was denied on the basis that you cannot patent a biological, especially a genetic code. Now, his counter-argument was that it wasn't natural, it was man-made which in fact it was to some degree. Um, we know the backstory is that they started with a canine coronavirus, which nobody paid attention to because it looked like veterinary medicine. So nobody was really paying attention to it thinking, oh, they're working on a corona 
or canine coronavirus, some vaccine for dogs, whatever. And everybody ignored it. But what was really happening was it was being sent to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, and they were doing gain-of-function research on it, which when Fauci said before Congress that he did not fund gain-of-function research, he flat-out lied because we now have the paper trail knowing that he used taxpayer money to fund gain-of-function research at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, in order to turn the canine coronavirus into the SARS-CoV-2 that we're dealing with today. So that would be felony number one. Um, according to David Barton, if you take out the lying to Congress, he, uh, he comes to the conclusion that Anthony Fauci is guilty of no less than five federal felonies. So again, I encourage you to listen to him and he can walk you through what they all are and how he gets there. Um, so they apply for this patent, they get shut down. They apply for it a second time, they get shut down. So what does he do? He bribes the patent office, again with taxpayer money, and he bribes the patent office in order to um, acquire his patent. Since he's bribing them, he gives them a little extra money in order to keep it a secret so that if you look up the patent record, if you just look it up online, you can see that there's a patent for coronavirus, but you can't see who holds it. That's because, according to David Martin, that's because he paid them to keep it a secret when normally it should be public knowledge. But in this case, it's generally not. Um, the fact that, that this was illegal, the patent office told him multiple times it's an illegal patent. In 2013, he had to renew the patent and that went to the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court, in their opinion, they also respond that this is an illegal patent that should not be held. So it does make you kind of wonder how all of this has been allowed when he shouldn't have this patent in the first place. So my point really in all of this is not all of this other stuff, but it's just the fact that there's nothing novel about this. And in fact, in that original patent from 2003, one of the things that we're told is novel is the ACE2 receptor binding site. Uh, the ACE2 binding receptor site is specifically mentioned in the patent from 2003, which means our knowledge of this goes back 17 years from when it first showed up. So if 17 years old makes it a novel coronavirus, that's a pretty sad thing. So they get this, they get this um, patent. Uh, one other thing I should mention is that in the patent, with, with the patent, is a coronavirus test kit. Now, this coronavirus test kit is used to detect the presence or absence of coronavirus. So where is it? Well, they used the patent to suppress it and hide it so that nobody can gain access to it. And that's why we're using PCR testing instead of using the appropriate testing, which has been hidden and protected by this patent. Now, if you know anything about patent law, <coughs> if you know anything about patent law, you know that the reason for a patent is that our, our government is supposed to be against monopolies. <laughs> it's kind of a joke now, but they're supposed to be anti-monopoly. And yet, even when you look at Rockefeller, when they made him break up Standard Oil, they made him break it into 40 different companies, but they still allowed him to retain ownership of all 40 companies. And so Rockefeller actually said that them breaking him up was one of the best things they ever did for him because he figured out that he could have one company creating the problem and another company solving the problem. So among his... 40 companies that Stan always broken into. One of them was Monsanto and another one was Merck. So he figured out he could solve the problem that he was creating. So it only works if you really break it all down. Now, the reason the patent law exists is because they realize that if you invent something, you should have the right 
to benefit from your own invention. You shouldn't be forced to share it with other people who can then benefit off of your invention. So the patent law was put in place so that you could have 10 years of using your, of having basically a 10 year monopoly in which you could use your, your patent to build and create whatever you wanted to, whatever company you wanted to. You got a huge 10 year head start on everybody else with the idea that you could set yourself well up well for the future. What it was never intended for was to use it as a way of suppressing information. And in fact, by doing that, it becomes a Sherman antitrust violation because the Sherman antitrust laws have to do with the suppression of information, the suppression of products. And so in that regard, the fact that they suppressed this test kit, actually, that would be felony number two, which is a Sherman antitrust violation. So um, you can see that this is not, you should already be getting the idea if you don't have it already. This is not about health and this is, I guess what I should say is this isn't a situation where we're being told some lies. This is a situation where the entire thing is a lie and it's only occasionally and by accident that they ever tell us the truth. This whole thing was set up to be, uh, I often refer now to COVID, now that I know a lot of stuff, I now refer to COVID as Fauci's pet monster. That that's really what it was created to be. It was intended to be his pet monster, but we'll get to why that is in just a second. The thing that I think is interesting, and this is something to hold on to because this is what we're going to talk about here in a second, because this is one of my first clues that started me down this path of how COVID kills. Once they got the patent in 2003, they got the patent and then they immediately began doing research. And the research they were doing is they were um, doing investigations in rabbits because they wanted to find out why there was such a huge rate of myocardial events associated with SARS-CoV-2 which means that they knew that there were cardiac events happening back in 2003. They just didn't know why. And so they started these rabbit studies. So that was my first clue that I went, huh, something's going on here. And I had to do a little bit more research. Um, so keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that when we get to, um, we'll come back to that when we get to, when we get to the, the meat of this. <clears throat> Another important thing is that way back when, Moderna gives a presentation called, quote, The New Normal. And they give it at a conference that is called the SARS and Bioterrorism Conference. Because early on, it was realized that the SARS, so actually SARS, the entire family of SARS, SARS, MERS, and SARS-CoV-2, they are all man-made through gain-of-function research. And so as early on, it was recognized that the SARS family of coronaviruses were an, had excellent potential as a bioweapon because it was so easily manipulable. So this was kind of so this was kind of known. And so Moderna gives this presentation on the new normal. And their new normal um sorry, I'm trying to look through my notes really fast to see if I can find the direct quote, but I can tell you basically what it was. Basically what their new normal was is that they wanted um they said wouldn't it be great if people were the word they used was addicted. If they were addicted to vaccines for their health instead of relying on their own immune system, essentially. So if we put this in context, Moderna up to this point has been a chemotherapy company. And the problem with being a chemotherapy company is that all of your patients, pretty much all of your patients eventually die. <clears throat> Either they get better or they die. And very few get better, so most of them die. So... That means you have to be getting new customers at the same rate that you're losing customers. 
And yet, even if you're doing that, all you're doing is staying constant. So the growth potential in this kind of company is not really there because people are dying as fast as they're coming in. So Moderna recognized from a business perspective that they wanted to find a different avenue. Plus, when you're doing chemotherapy, it's not outside the realm of reason that somebody might die, the family members might be upset, they might sue you, you have to fight these lawsuits. What a pain. They looked over at the other side and said, look at these vaccine people. They have zero liability. Why are we in the chemo business where we have no upside potential and we're getting sued when we could be in the vaccine business where we can do anything we want uh, and we'll make money because nobody can sue us so we have no downside. So that was their mentality. So they wanted to break into this. and But then they looked at it and they said to themselves, let's say that you're the vaccine company who makes MMR or polio vaccine. If a person is between the ages of 18 and death, how many MMR vaccines or polio vaccines do you think they're gonna get? Well, for most people, at the very most, it would be one. Most people get none, which means all of your customers exist up to the age of 18, and then they're no longer your customer, which is part of the reason why they're trying to pound so many vaccines at them before 18, because as long as they're your customer, you want to get as much into them and get as much money out of them as you possibly can before they hit 18 and you lose them for life. It's purely a business decision. Well, Moderna looked at that and said, that's not good enough because we've losing all these customers. What if we could get people in a position where every single year from 18 until death, they're having, they're, they are addicted to getting a new vaccine that they believe will give them the immunity they need to make it through that year. And it just becomes an annual habit because now we're getting the money from all those years. This was their, this was their new normal concept. Well, you can quickly see that the first attempt at this is the flu vaccine. And so the flu vaccine would be the first vaccine that people go and get it annually, which means a lot more profit. The problem with the flu vaccine is that it just doesn't work very well. And the cat's kind of out of the bag and people are starting to figure that out. So because it doesn't work very well, what ends up happening is, um, according to the Cochrane collaboration, your chances of getting the flu in any given year are 2%. If you get the flu vaccine, it goes down to 1%, which is a 1% reduction in your relative risk. However, the, the vaccine companies like to tell you that it's a 50% reduction, that from two down to one is a 50% reduction, but that's not true because we're looking at a 100 point scale. You actually went from a 2% risk out of 100 to a 1% risk out of 100. That's a 1% reduction. And for this 1% reduction, what you get is a fourfold increase in all non-flu related viruses, meaning retrovirus, enterovirus, and a whole host of other viruses that can make you quite sick. So you're, you're gonna risk a fourfold increase in order to get a 1% decrease most people are going to say that that's not worth it. So that's why that information had to be kept under wraps for so long. But it's very simple to go online and you can look up the Cochrane collaboration, their assessment of the flu vaccine. And that's what they will tell you from their, um, from their review. <clears throat> so at this point, they've kind of realized, okay, this flu vaccine thing isn't working, but we've got a good concept that can make a lot of money. So if we release this COVID thing, which again, this is bioterrorism to do this. So that would be another felony um, or two or three. So they release this, this thing and they see it as having a twofold benefit. One, 
is that they expected it to be a lot more deadly. Um, and I mean a lot more deadly. They thought that they were going to, I, I think they honestly thought they were going to reduce the world's population in half with this thing. They never expected it to be able to be countered with something as simple as hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and a Z-pack, um, or, any of the, or ivermectin or any of these other things. They didn't think it would be that weak. They also didn't expect it um, to, to just not be as deadly as they thought it was going to be. So, um, so that was a disappointment to them. But that's also the reason why since then they've given the worst advice possible. Wear a mask and get your blood oxygen down so that you're more susceptible. Social distance. Like let's separate this. Instead of getting everybody sick and, and then getting them healthy and giving them good treatment, let's separate them out. Let's let them suffer. Let's try, like the whole thing has been backwards because whether people want to admit it or not, Dr. Fauci and the CDC actually want to drive up the death rate because that was the original intent. And people just aren't scared enough of it because they wanted them to be super scared. They wanted to drop the population and then they wanted to bring in this vaccine that everyone would be so addicted to, convinced that it was going to save their lives, that they can make a whole lot of profit. That basically was the plan. And it comes from this Moderna presentation on the new normal. Um, in fact, to, to kind of put a bow on all this, Moderna knew that they would be in line to create this mRNA vaccine for the coronavirus uh, before anybody even knew it was out. So Moderna actually gets the info they need from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. On, They basically gave them the genetic code by way of phone. Um, and they developed the RNA vaccine. And it was complete in November of 2019. November 2019. So you tell me. Why do you need to create a vaccine for a virus that at that time did not exist? And we're led to believe it didn't exist. And yet, from the patent record, we know it did exist. So, that, that kind of sums all that up. Uh, again, like I said, I would encourage you to listen to David Martin and hear what he has to say. Um, he's got all kinds of details, and he does give you the exact patent numbers. Uh, I wrote them down. I looked them up. Um, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I can't get as much information on him as he can, but I can get enough to see that what he's talking about is right. <clears throat> so, here's where things got a little funky for me. Remember the, th the study on the rabbits? And I started thinking about this, and I was like, what is this issue with blood? Because um, it, was a, it was months ago when, when I first started being stories about people getting the vaccine and then having problems with blood clots. I remember uh, Dan Lyons called me and said, do you think that's real? And what mechanism is that? And I told him, I said, I don't think these people are lying, but I can't figure out by what mechanism that would even happen. So it was one of those things where I was like, maybe it's happening. I don't know if it's happening. I don't know why it's happening. And I can't figure out a mechanism. So I'm just going to kind of put it on a shelf and wait. So I left it on that shelf and waited until I got this information about the rabbits and the fact that they knew there was myocardial stuff. So I decided to hit PubMed and do a little bit of hunting. And what I found in pretty short order was pretty amazing. Um, so one thing about the patent is that the patent revealed that certain people have a change in blood coagulation associated with SARS-CoV-2. Once I knew that, I had an idea of what keywords I needed to put in as I did my hunting. And one of the first studies I found, um, which I believe... I believe the author was uh, Z Shang, Z-I-S-H-A-N-G at all. Um, 
But what they discovered is that it's the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. This is very important. So let me, um, I think this is why as doctors, we're positioned to understand this in a way that most patients cannot understand. So let's say you've got a peanut butter sandwich. And let's say you've got a kid who's allergic to peanut butter. So you feed him the peanut butter sandwich. He goes into anaphylactic shock and he dies. Did the peanut butter sandwich kill him? Well, the average Joe Schmo would say, yes, the peanut butter sandwich killed him. But as doctors, we know that the peanut butter sandwich did not kill him. It was his body's response to the peanut butter sandwich that killed him. And so technically, that allows us the opportunity to say that peanut butter sandwiches are harmless. We could technically say that. They are harmless. And yet there are lots of kids who would die if they ate one because of the way their body would respond to it. So keeping that in mind, and we can understand that, that's how the spike protein is. Not everybody responds the same way to it. And so one of the things I found out in, by looking through these studies is that I didn't know is that our blood cells, our red blood cells in particular, have ACE2 binding receptors as well. So when the spike protein, which binding to these receptors is what the spike protein does. So it binds to the ACE2 receptors in the lungs, but it's also binding to the ACE2 receptors in the blood. And when it binds to those, according to Zi Shang, what they found is that it caused increased platelet number or platelet aggregation, and it also caused platelet activation. In fact, they actually described it as hyperactivation. So what does that mean? It means it's getting to the blood cells, it's increasing the platelets, and then it's basically giving you semi-coagulated blood or very, very viscous blood. And... Um, for some reason, it seems to create bleeding disorders. I'm not sure yet how that happens, how the blood starts to leak or accumulate, but this platelet problem is the problem. And so you might have heard on the news every once in a while, they'll talk about people getting the vaccine and then having a, a problems or a, a risk of um, emboli. Well, it's not emboli. Nobody's had an embolism. And yet I don't expect a journalist to know the difference or know what this is because I mean, honestly, most journalists, I don't think even have journalism degrees. They probably have some humanities or liberal arts degree. So without having any science knowledge, how would they know the difference? But most likely what's happening is it's actually thrombosis. In fact, I found a case study of a woman um, with COVID who died of a left cerebral ischemic stroke that was directly related to the disease, and it had to do with thrombosis. So what's happening a lot of times in the lungs is you're getting thrombosis, which is essentially a blood clot forming in the site. Like we know an embolism is when it forms somewhere else, then you throw the emboli, like say from your leg or your calf, and it moves up and gets lodged in a tiny blood vessel in your lung. That would be an embolism. Thrombosis is when the blood actually coagulates in the lung and creates this problem. Um, so this was the knowledge that I had <coughs> of the blood and the problem that the blood causes. I, sorry I keep coughing. I'm still getting over this COVID thing and getting this junk out of my lungs. Um, so I originally got sick and, um, and I certainly had trouble breathing for a couple days. And then it was probably about day three, I noticed that I was having more and more trouble moving my lungs. And so that was when my wife first suggested, do you think maybe you have... Um, pneumonia. 
And I thought, well, yeah, if I went to a doctor, I'm sure they would tell me I had pneumonia by my inability to move the bottom of my lungs and the heaviness that I feel. And I thought if somebody came to me, I'd tell them they had pneumonia. So then I started thinking about that. And I thought, um, when somebody has pneumonia, what's in there? Like if we could go into their lungs and pull it out, what's in there? Well, most of the time we would assume it's some kind of like yellowish to yellow green mucousy snot like thing that's in there. And then I thought, well, what if that's not what's in there? How would you know? How would you know that it is? How would you know that it's not? And so based on this research I started reading, I started thinking to myself, I wonder if I have blood pooling in my lungs and semi-coagulating, that basically I have lung thrombosis. And it's and I will tell you, it was hard work breathing. So my worst day was probably about a little over a week after I got initially got sick. Um, week and a couple days. And that worst day, we were taking my pulse ox the whole time. On that day, my pulse ox was about 85 to 87, and I could not get it any higher no matter how, how much work I did. So basically my day consisted of breathing as forcefully and hard as I could for about 30 minutes, then being so exhausted that I fell asleep. And as soon as I woke up, I would start breathing forcefully and deeply for about 30 minutes, and then I would be exhausted again, and I would fall asleep. And I did that for the whole day. That was my whole day. I, I had no energy to do anything beyond that, and that's all I did. So I really felt like it was thick at the bottom. And so this is particular day, with my pulse socks being so low, my wife said, is there a point at which we need to take you to the doctor? And I said, no. <laughs> now, you have to understand my relationship with the hospital here. On three different occasions, they've tried to kill me. And on all three occasions, the reason why they tried to kill me is that my wife and I went in there and said, look, here's the problem. Here it is on a silver platter. And they basically said, well, if this is the diagnosis of a chiropractor and a pediatric dentist, then it can't be that. Let's go with something else. And by going with something else, they almost killed me by ignoring the thing that we gave them on a silver platter. So at this point, I was like, three strikes, you're out. I'm not giving them another chance. And so I, told, I walked my wife through. And I said, okay, let's say I go to the hospital. What are they going to do? Well, first, they're going to stick those stupid swabs up my nose. I'm not doing that anymore. I've already done that twice. I'm not doing that anymore. So, and that's the last thing I need. Plus, I don't trust the PCR test anyway. And why do I need them to tell me I have a disease I obviously have? So that's stupid. I said, and then because I can't breathe, what are they most likely to do? Put me on a ventilator? Well, we all know how that ends. And I was like, I just don't see how anything good is going to come from going there. So no, I'll die at home before I go to the hospital. So my wife said, okay, so if the hospital's out, we got to do something. So what are we going to do? And I said, I don't know. And she said, well, I've got a protocol. You want to try it? And I said, well, it's better than going to the hospital and getting stuck on a ventilator. Let's do that. So we did, I did massive doses of vitamin A and D. Um, and the protocol was actually about double what I was taking, but I just couldn't take that many pills and have my stomach handle it. So I was taking a, a hundred thousand IU of vitamin A and 50,000 IU of vitamin D, and I was doing it twice a day. And the first time I did it, about two hours later, I could start to breathe, and my pulse ox went up into the 90s. So I knew it was making a difference. So again, if you think about A and D, what can they affect? They can affect the blood and blood viscosity. So that started cluing me in. I was like, you know, I think it is the blood because A and D made a huge difference. So I kept doing the A and D thing. Now at this point, I had um, contacted America's Frontline Doctors. I had done an online um, consultation with them, and they had sent me to their pharmacy. 
because they are so busy and they were so backed up, they actually had their computers crash. It ended up taking me, I got my prescription sent on a Saturday, but I didn't receive that prescription till the following Friday. So when all of this happened where I was so bad and I started the A&D, that was on the Thursday before the Friday when I got the pills. So I used the vitamin A and D, which I believe saved my life, to get through Thursday and Friday <coughs> until my stuff arrived Friday evening. And as soon as it came, immediately I took the hydroxychloroquine, the zinc, and the Z-Pack. That was Friday night. By Sunday, I was noticeably better as far as having COVID. Like I could tell that the virus was now gone. It wiped it out fast. The problem was I still couldn't breathe. And so I felt fine, but I couldn't breathe. There was no oxygen and I was really exhausted. So, um, so I was like, okay, I got to get better from this. Now here's where it gets really strange. When they sent me all that stuff, we were hoping that they would send me, um, an inhaler, but they didn't. They sent me uh, a nose spray. And so Monday morning I wake up and I was actually feeling good enough that what my, what my wife had been doing was, um, taking my kids to my parents so that she could work because I was in no shape to be watching my kids. Well, on this Monday, I was actually so much better when I almost died on Thursday. I was already so much better on Monday that I was like, leave them with me. I'm good. I can take care of them. I can feed them whatever I got to do. I, I don't have a lot of energy, but I can do it. So my kids are sitting, <laughs> sitting at the bar eating breakfast and I'm in the recliner. And I was like, I'm, I, I noticed this day. I was like, I feel like my sinuses are full and I hadn't had any of that. I thought, how weird that my sinuses are full. So I take this spray and I spray it up my nose. Uh, I wait just a few minutes and it's like, oh, I got to blow my nose. So I grab a Kleenex to blow my nose. I blow my nose um, and I apologize, this may get a little graphic, but what came out was black as tar and I immediately recognized it as blood. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of blood. And there was no mucus, no snot, no nothing. It was just blood. And I was like, that's really weird. So I sat there a little bit longer and then um, all of a sudden I started coughing because I had to cough this stuff up. So I cough up as much as I can and I hack this thing into my mouth. And I was like, I got to see this. So I grab another Kleenex and I spit it in the Kleenex. And guess what color it is? It is black. It is blood. And I was like, wow, I'm hacking blood out of my lungs. So sit there a little bit longer, a few more minutes. All of a sudden I get a bloody nose out of my right nostril. So I grab a Kleenex and I start holding it. I've had lots of bloody noses as a kid, so whatever. I grab it and I'm going to make it stop. Well, I sit there for a while. It seemed like it took a while for it to stop. It finally started to stop. And so I decided to take the Kleenex away. And as I pulled it out, um, I'm pulling out this bloody thing. And I can feel the end of it halfway down my throat. And it's like filling up my sinuses. So I pull this out and <laughs> I can only describe it as looking like a bloody job of the hut. It was like, it looked like a blood worm. I, it was the craziest thing I ever saw. And I pulled this thing out of my nose and I guess I made some kind of sound. My kids come running over and they both were like, that's awesome. <laughs> and I was like, this, this is really strange. But I pulled this thing out of my sinuses and it's, it's big, big and bloody. Um, but as soon as it was out, I could breathe. Like it probably improved my breathing 25% just to get this thing out of my sinuses. And I was like, you know, considering this, this is a lot of blood. I'm blowing blood out of my nose. I'm coughing up blood out of my lungs. I'm pulling it out of my, pulling out of my nose again. Um, and so since then, every, as I, as I slowly was coughing stuff up, um, 
I would I, as I would cough it up and I would spit it out because I wanted to see it. And and even as recently as yesterday, I was going to the bathroom and I was I started coughing, hacked this thing up, so I spit it in the toilet because I wanted to see blood. There's still blood, so I'm still cleaning the blood out of my lungs. But this is it appears to be the secret is that the pen, not everybody has the same number of ACE2 receptors on their red blood cells. So if you have to be, happen to be somebody who has a lot of them, that the spike protein, whether you get it from the virus like I did, or you get it from a vaccine, it doesn't matter. Those spike proteins are going to go off your red blood cells. And if you don't have a lot of spike protein, I mean, if you don't have a lot of ACE2 receptors, then you're fine. You're not going to have a response. And these are the people who will tell you, oh, the virus is nothing. Oh, the vaccine is nothing. That's where that category comes from. Then you've got people like me who have a lot, apparently have a lot of ACE2 receptors. It binds to it. It starts platelet aggregation. It starts hyper. It starts making those platelets hyperactive. It starts coagulating the blood and making it viscous. You start getting thrombosis and you can get it just as easily from the vaccine as you can from the wild virus because of the spike proteins. That's the whole, that's the whole game. That's what causes this reaction. And like the peanut butter sandwich, um, it's like if if you had this peanut butter sandwich and you said, okay, everybody has to eat a peanut butter sandwich. Some people are going to die. <laughs> and it's a peanut butter sandwich. But some people are going to die because some people have an allergy. Well, what if they don't know they have an allergy? The only way you're going to know is if you eat the peanut butter sandwich and then you'll know. So if you were unclear on whether or not you had the allergy and you had to eat the peanut butter sandwich, wouldn't it make sense to be all set up with the best treatment so that you could eat the sandwich, and if you do happen to be somebody who responds negatively to it, you can immediately do your treatment and bring you back out of it. That's my view of this whole thing, is that giving vaccines to people when you don't even know if they're going to respond, how they're going to respond, and there's no treatment in place because all the treatments that work have been poo-pooed and shoved to the side, we've taken away all the viable options, and now we're just forcing everybody to eat peanut butter sandwiches and and assuming that nobody's going to die, which is just foolishness. So, um, I mean, for me, I ultimately, it probably wouldn't have I didn't get the vaccine, but if I had, I probably would have had a very similar reaction. And it's because the vaccine contains the spike protein and that's how my body responds to the spike protein. Uh, and apparently there's a lot that do. The question is, we don't really know what the percentage is. I'm going to guess it's more than 10%. It certainly seems to be more than 10%. And it could be as high as 60%. That have trouble because certainly everyone who's died of COVID, everyone had this reaction with the blood. I'm pretty much guaranteed. And yet there's another subgroup like me of people who had the negative response, but because of taking whatever or whatever route we took, we lived and we lived in spite of it. And and who knows even who even knows how many people are in that group? That group could be big, it could be small, we have no idea. All we know is that this spike protein affects the blood vessel, affects the blood, and causes this aggregation. So I think it's important for people to understand that. And even though your patients may not be very accepting of it, I think it's really helpful for you to understand that because as you start looking at the overall picture and you see some people saying it's no big deal and you see some people dying, you're going to be able to say, well, I see what's happening here. It's all making sense. It has to do with that spike protein. And so um, hopefully... That draws some clarity, but I think that we're going to find that in the end, the difference between death from COVID and some simple flu-like symptoms has everything to do with how we respond to that spike protein. So 
I, ho I hope you learned something today. I hope that gives you a, an aha moment as we talked about last time. Uh, and uh, as always, I hope you have the very best week possible. And I'll see you again next time. Oh, my God.